In New Jersey, we found Welcome to this week's episode of Jersey Matters. We're your host, Michael Perino. And I'm Casey McLean. And this week we have a very special guest. Colin Malay. Nailed that intro. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Colin Malay. Uh, it's nice to be on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being our first guest. It's truly an honor. Yeah. Colin, do you want to talk a little bit and introduce yourself and like what you do and your experience in the, you're not just in the New Jersey political realm. You also did some stuff in New York, right? Yes, actually, now I'm primarily New York. So uh, I work currently uh, as a political consultant. I'm the owner and operator of Field Winds, which is a new firm that I just started this year. Of course, best time to start a new firm right now. Um, <laughs> but I've worked uh, all around the country on different political campaigns with my focus primarily being field campaigns. So I've worked previously as field director. I've managed campaigns and I've also done a little bit of fundraising. But, you know, we can get into the specifics of that a little bit later yeah that's yeah, great look forward to it yeah so uh in the headlines this week more coronavirus news i don't know if we have really anything do you have anything that's non-coronavirus related no and colin if you have seen any headlines that are not corona related now would be the time to speak up <laughs> i'm gonna be honest with you i don't think that i have that anything that's uh, other than fluff really um it's 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 either Corona or all of the secondary effects, which we're really seeing the impact of now. Yeah. Yeah. We went into some of those last week with uh, mocking celebrities, but um, unfortunately <laughs> they, haven't, they haven't really done anything uh, new this week. So I guess I'll just go. Yeah. Through. Um, I got, so according to ABC seven news, New Jersey's expanding its drive through testing uh, centers for COVID-19. And it looks like there's going to be uh, uh, some in Essex County and Passaic County as well. And that's really all that's going also in Monmouth. So it looks like it's just kind of following through with what Murphy said, that they're going to be expanding testing and uh, that it's good. Testing is part of how we're going to get through this, knowing who has the cases and should self-quarantine. So with, um, what counties do we have testing facilities in so far? They're saying two more drive-through coronavirus testing centers opening in Middlesex and Ocean Counties. And this article says that there's some in Essex, Sayag, and Monmouth, Owen Bergen. I wonder if they're setting them up, because if they're not listing specific cities, I think that's the, like, I don't know where you're supposed to get tested. I think that's a thing that New Jerseyans need to know. And I don't think there's enough transparency yet, because I think they're setting it up. And I don't think they have it. Honestly, I don't think they have enough tests for people. That's what I'm hearing through all the different talking heads. Is that they don't have the tests and they don't have um, swabs. And the healthcare workers are who are on the front lines of this are also getting sick themselves yeah, and getting taken out of commission. Yeah, I know um, that there are different companies in, in the healthcare industry and pharmaceutical industry are moving their efforts because if you think about it, they have these protective gear like on hand because they have people who are you know creating sanitary products for commercial use and. They're now trying to send those things to the healthcare workers who are dealing with the coronavirus. And so you see, you keep seeing, I've, I've been seeing the stories about that start popping up of people diverting their resources, like major corporations diverting their resources to help people. But then you also see the other side of it of 
like uh, Gordon Ramsay just recently laid off 500 employees for his restaurant, <laughs> but he's paying them out until I think the middle of April. So he's doing exactly what you're not supposed to be doing. So in this kind of dark times, you're seeing both the best and the worst out of uh, business owners. Yeah. And then uh, related to that, I just read in the Financial Times um, today that uh, uh, airline industries are also uh, suffering uh, greatly, which makes sense. Airline, no one's going to the airports and traveling because of the coronavirus. But uh, some uh, airlines are losing like $50 million a day. And uh, their analysts are recommending uh, them lay off up to like 60,000 employees. So uh, this is yeah, this is pretty big. They, we talked about the economic effects overall last week, but it's just going to continue to uh, worsen as long as there's not an actual appropriate response. And some of this can't be done by the governor. It has to be done at the federal level. That's the only thing that has the resources to do that. The, the other thing that New Jersey government can really do is help, you know, small New Jersey businesses. I don't think they can do anything for the corporations, unfortunately. So we'll see if companies stay here, certain industries just die out completely. Like I don't, the, with the airline example, I think it's funny because you're going to have people not purchasing tickets. And then when hopefully the economy comes back, there might not be certain airlines available because yeah. they're, they're out of business. Yeah. And they can't, you know, so it's think, a, you go um, on. Oh, thank you. I, I'm sorry yeah. for cutting you off. Uh, yeah. I think what will be very, <laughs> I think what will be interesting is whenever the end of the, the curve is and we're seeing a more some somewhat return to normalcy is that impact that that will have on businesses and then the lack of availability, right? So like your airline example, I think that could also be true for a lot of other industries, whether that's, you know, a bunch of people trying to go back to work and not being enough jobs because they've been all requisitioned or reorganized in a way that the positions just aren't there. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be um, yeah, deeply severe. So uh, uh, I mentioned last week that uh, JP Morgan Chase estimated that in the uh, second quarter of 2020, there was going to be a uh, negative uh, 14% contraction in U.S. GDP, which uh, by comparison, the worst month of uh, the 2008-2009 financial crisis was a 8.4% contraction. And then uh, the worst year of the Great Depression was thir around 13%. So they were estimating that, that the worst, uh, this quarter was going to be worse than some of the worst parts of the depression in terms of uh, contraction in GDP. So some, some people will go back to their jobs once this is opened up, whether that's in April is probably not going to be the case. Like our president thinks that everyone's going to be back. Right? <laughs> it'll but, it'll uh, be beautiful with Easter. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's definitely how it's happening. <laughs> it's very special to me. Uh, Easter with the churches and the, the people at the churches church and just get coronavirus that's which is probably what's going to happen yeah because uh, it, feeling murphy and governors in um uh, New York area yeah yeah like that aren't going to listen because it's really trump can't order new jersey to reopen that's up to the governor yeah and and on that note i think some of the other headlines i was seeing was also the irs speaking of like big government they are confirming that all tax deadlines are being extended to july 15th yeah so people will be able to file their taxes up until then which i think is interesting that it's pushed to july and we're still in quarantine now 
you know, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. April is rapidly approaching and I don't know, you guys do your own taxes or you have a tax person. I go to H&R Block and that's a very close <laughs> quarter kind of situation. So I don't know if there's going to be enough time between, you know, whenever quarantine's going to be over and Trump and other officials keep saying it's until April, basically. But there are other indicators that it's going to be much longer than that. Yeah. I have a feeling part of the reason why the extension of, I mean, I don't know this is a fact, but my guess is the, the reason they extended part of the deadline is also because the IRS probably has a lot of people not working. So yeah. the, the, so it's just the, probably the capacity to process tax returns and is going to be uh, very uh, d- uh, difficult for them. That's yeah, that's, it's definitely going to be a, this is not even considering the, you know, federal support that's coming through, which would really tax the IRS in terms of resources already. You know, what you're paying Trump out. Trump bucks, baby. Trump bucks. Yeah. <laughs> Look, man, I don't like the guy, but I'll cash his damn check. Yeah. <laughs> We're all cashing that check. Yeah. <laughs> but that brings it up, you know, Ed, because you're absolutely right. I guarantee you that they're not at full capacity and that's not even counting the budget cuts that have gone into very, and we're seeing it now. We're seeing why you you don't necessarily want to cut services is because when you need them, it is hard to scale up. Even if you give them back funding, like anything else, it takes time to staff. It takes time to train. It takes time to create good processes. So now that we have to do this, you know, the IRS just is not equipped, you know, to execute these things as fast as possible. So I'm not surprised. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they push it back even further, honestly, with everything that's coming down the line. It's coming out of the treasury. Uh, exactly. The, the money. So the IRS employees are probably going to be, there's probably going to have to set up some kind of system. That's, that's going to be very complicated. Yeah. Um, not that it's not doable, but it's just, like you said, with the cuts, oh man, yeah, this is a terrible time to be an IRS employee. <laughs> I do not envy them. Uh, I mean, yeah. you know. so, yeah. um, oh, go ahead. Go on. No, you go on. Uh, I was going to just go to the next headline. Let's yeah. On this. Right. So I was going to give an update on the total number of cases. Uh, Governor Murphy yesterday said that we had 2,492 new positive COVID cases since the previous day, bringing our total to 6,876. That's a, I looked it up. That's about a 56, a 56% increase in one day, which makes sense. We're doing more testing, but also the virus is spreading more just because uh, uh, I think the measures weren't put in quick enough. And also uh, there's no guidance from the federal government on this issue. So it's very difficult to keep this contained. New Jersey can't act alone, has to act in concert with the other states and the federal government. And I think what's also something that's not really being spoken about in the news is that, and the thing that Trump keeps saying is that there are hotspots, but no one's talking about people who are fleeing those hotspots and also possibly contaminating other states. And because we're, you know, basically a borderless, like it's kind of like the EU, you know, like we don't have hard borders in place in this country. And you could, I know a number of people who have fled New York and gone to Connecticut or gone to New Jersey or, you know, all the different surrounding states. So you might not have necessarily a hotspot in those states that are surrounding the hotspots, but I promise you it's going to, there's going to be a large increase in a mass exodus from the hotspot areas and it's going to, you know, spread rapidly and we won't know about it because, you know, there are no regulations in place. States are not communicating effectively with one another and people aren't tested and they're fleeing. 
and they're yeah, spreading. Absolutely. <laughs> and you, you mentioned in a previous episode about how many commuters we have. I forget the exact number, but it's like we have millions of commuters millions. going in and out of New York. <laughs> and, You're talking uh, to it's, one right here. I had to yes. go in and out of New York City, and that's why I put myself in self-quarantine. We had to finish a campaign that was cut short on March 17th. So up until March 17th, I was commuting from Bayonne to uh, New York City. So it, it was it was very interesting. You know, it, it looked almost like a scene out of a movie with like the lack of people uh, transporting. But if that's just me, you know, and I know I'm taking good precaution, but the, the insidious thing about this virus is that it doesn't present symptoms immediately. So that's where people spread it. That's where a lot of the spread happens. So and there's been a lot of disinformation on that, including coming from presidential candidate uh, Joe Biden and his campaign stating that if people uh, don't show symptoms and you're feeling healthy, you should go you should go to the polls and vote. That basically wow. encouraged. Yeah, yeah <laughs> yep. exactly. That, that encouraged people to not understand that you could be an asymptomatic carrier. And uh, I guarantee that there was infections caused from that. I mean, we saw it with uh, healthy, quote unquote, healthy individuals uh, at the spring break stuff. Now going back to their state, spreading more uh, coronavirus all, infection. That's pretty All cool, for the was. win, the political win and a good time. Like, <laughs> yeah. So uh, the um, best thing to come out of a potential heads up campaign with uh, Mr. Trump. So we'll yeah. we'll see how that plays out or rather if the election plays out. That's the big uncertainty that's going through my world is a lot of people. You mean the do you mean the primary or a general yes, election? The primary. Yeah. Mainly because. I mean, currently, when you're looking at the numbers, it seems like a done deal. However, stranger things have happened. I've said that about this race when anyone asks. Um, but when you're looking at what is happening to elections, not only have they called off campaigning, but what they've done is they've what's called stayed elections because there's just no information, right? We don't know when this will end. And with that uncertainty, you're seeing this in the event planning field and you're seeing it like, you know, an election is essentially an event, right? The BOE has to plan that event. And if we don't know where those resources are, or what the situation is going to be, they put a stay on a lot of these elections. Now, uh, B -B -O -A, BOE being... Oh, I'm sorry. Board yeah. of Elections, whether that's. Okay, yeah, yeah. Point, point, let me, <laughs> I was going to ask too. <laughs> please, please let me know if I'm using dummy lingo. Um, I will. That's cool. No, it's. It, <laughs> I mean, I we'll definitely do that. <laughs> but, uh, uh, um, that. That's a good point. So we could actually be seeing primaries uh, extend into the summer. Um, and the other thing I was reading is uh, a lot of these things are getting pushed to. I think it's June second. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, other states have moved their primary and the. NC originally said that they are going to uh, penalize states that move their primary through like reducing their amount of delegates. But I have a feeling wow. that's happening because of, I mean, the states are going to be really mad that <laughs> their delegate count gets penalized for taking safe health precautions and it'll just look bad on the DNC. So potentially, I, I've been pushing this, New Jersey might matter because we're going to have a ton of states <laughs> on, uh, on June 2nd. First now. time in history, really. Yeah. I mean, usually we do not matter when it comes to primaries on a federal level. So this would be interesting. I'm, there's just so many uncertainties, a lot of speculation, which I think is is also kind of a little bit of a problem because people have so much time to fill now. Like I was watching uh, Morning Joe with my dad, not together. We were separately yeah, watching it and talking on social the distancing, uh, Colin. Yeah, we were. We were. We were on the phone. We were doing our social distancing thing, but it was just, you know speculation for 30 minutes. There was no hard facts and anything. And this, you know, it's, it's sort of endemic of a lot of other sim system
symptomatic problems, not symptomatic problems. Um, but because of that, there's a lot of misinformation exactly. probably with, there's no intention. Like for the most part, I don't think there's a lot of ill intention, but when you just have this amount of time you need to fill, you're going to speculate. Right. And so speculation leads to misinformation. Exactly. On this program, we try to speculate within like the bounds of reason. I'm not like just joking. We, we don't try to go yeah. too fanciful. Too um, extreme. <laughs> yeah, but like, yeah, I'm seeing things on um, on the uh, corporate news or even on like local radio stations where it's like, oh, it's going to be over within a week because yeah. uh, or yeah. like, oh, you know, uh, China and uh, Wuhan, uh, they lifted the lockdown after two two months. That's probably what we're looking at. Uh, completely ignoring the different measures that were taken. And there's no reason to expect it to run out the same here. And, and also, yeah. it's it's the great thing about us having our own podcast is that we are not beholden to any kind of corporate stakeholder. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize about the, you know, widespread media. The, it's it's corporate-owned, corporate-run, and that's how you get the same headline repeated in different ways, but it's always, like, the same line. You could see it on, on YouTube. There's always all these clips of newscasters in, in different regions of the country just saying the same exact headline with the same exact, you know, they might tone it differently or, like, try to jazz it up with a different adjective, but it's the same thing, and that's because the information's coming from their their corporate leader. And yeah. they, they're you know, they're all connected in some way or another. It's a very incestuous industry, the media industry. Exactly. Um, that's where I hail from. And it's it's wild that people are not aware of it and how dangerous it could be. And that's how you get these little talk show hosts on, you know, New Jersey public radio, not public radio, but like, you know, New Jersey 101.5 was the one that we called out. Lord. Oh, gosh. <laughs> they are literally still um, downplaying it. And one of the hosts just keeps coughing. And I'm like, do you? I'm not I'm just like do you have it like like how long are you gonna wait to just acknowledge this is a serious crisis yeah we don't and need to you know dunk on them but, over and over again even though it's yeah. endlessly enjoyable <laughs> it's just what is your what is your stake in the game like we have no literally zero stake in the game right and we're just trying to spread awareness to various jersey matters uh <laughs> issues and it's it's shocking that people are still being selfish in that way. And you have people who are, um, I mean, this is not New Jersey politics, but uh, is it Rand Paul was oh, got a test and was waiting for the results and went all over the place and like touched he was, everything. And he was at like the uh, <laughs> congressional gym and other stuff. And it's just like so dumb, so selfish. But it's just know what your politicians are doing and how they're actually behaving, not just what they're saying. And I think what we're really going to see with all of this is as the money, right, as the money stops coming in is when a lot of people who can afford to be nice when the money's coming in, not going to be so nice now. So this is where sort of the rubber meets the road for a lot of people, whether you're in politics or in the corporate world, and you're seeing this panic coming from those folks because they're losing stock like crazy with the stock market. Doesn't matter so much to unskilled labor. What matters to them is jobs. So, the, you know, while that's dropping, obviously we're getting hit way harder with lack of labor. But, you know, when you're looking at 
how corporations and how these large organizations act, they're going to act in the best interest of their money, whether that's by influencing the media, whether that's by laying people off. You know, as much as we say it's not surprising, or sorry, it's surprising, I would argue it's not. <laughs> I would say you know, right. when you really think about it, you know, this is kind of what's going to happen. It's kind of a negative way to view it, but uh, ultimately we just have to hold a people to a much higher standard. There needs to be a much higher standard held to these these organizations. It just has to be. I agree. I do want to say the one thing that was surprising was seeing the lieutenant governor of um, Texas basically saying that senior citizens are ready to die for rich people's uh, stock to go up. No one reached out to me and said, uh, as a senior citizen, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren. And if that's the exchange, I'm all in. I just think there are lots of grandparents out there in this country, like me, I have six grandchildren, that what we all care about and what we love more than anything are those children. I don't want the whole country to be sacrificed. We're having an economic collapse. I'm also a small businessman. I understand it. My message is that Let's get back to work. Let's get back to living. Let's be smart about it. And those of us who are 70 plus, we'll, we'll take care of ourselves, but don't sacrifice the country. It was insane to see basically people and now trending on, on Twitter, uh, not dying for Wall Street. Like I, I usually they try to hide that the other thing they do is care about profit by pretending that it also benefits workers. But now they're literally like, look, you know, a bunch of you are just going to die. It's almost like a let them eat cake moment. Like whatever, yeah. die so that my portfolio can remain stable. Well, it's here's like, the interesting part, right? So if you were to really put in their framework, right? Because a lot of times we like to separate ourselves from people who are so ideologically different. And that's good in a certain sense, but also bad another way because we can't understand how they reach that conclusion, right? You can't put the thoughts together that led to this woman saying this thing because it's so alien, right, to the way we view the world. So the way I'm looking at it is they view, and by they, I mean people who hold that view, view the stock market and like the economy literally like the health of their nation. So yeah, to them, it's right. like a wartime death, right? It's like die for the for everyone's benefit in the country, right? That's how they're viewing it, not cognizant that that's absolutely not what this is. <laughs> I also think that they're doing a, a bad calculus. So they're, they're basically right. saying, they're putting a price on a life, right? Which, you know, economics does. Uh, they try to figure, it's something like uh, one life is worth about $10 million or something like that. I forget what it is uh, in standard textbooks. But then they try to say like, okay, so how much money is going to be lost in the stock market uh, if we shut down the economy versus if we have it open? Uh, but what they ignore is like, I think that like the economy is still going to collapse because people aren't going to go to restaurants. Uh, people aren't going to go to the theaters. They aren't going to be buying plane tickets, even if they like formally are allowed to do these things. It wasn't like the economy was perfect a couple months ago. It was already heading towards a global recession. Uh, so it's just, I think it's incredibly short-sighted. Plus when you start having um, literally hundreds of thousands of people dying from coronavirus and uh, hospitals overwhelmed, then they have to make those uh, triage decisions of, uh, right. do I have a... Uh, uh, 20 year, do I have one incubator. Do I give it to a 20 year old, a 30 year old that has kids, a 40 year old who smoked his entire life, or like the 60 year old uh, grandpa who's probably going to die, but he has been a taxpayer for his entire life? Like, which do I do? Which do I do? When, when, the, when you're seeing those that. Decisions, that is starting to happen, and when you see these yeah. decisions happen, people aren't going to want to engage in the economy in a normal consuming way because they're going to want to, you know, shelter down and avoid, you know, dying or getting yeah. sick. It's 
It's that removal of emotion. And I think uh, Cuomo was talking about it in his address, I think, yesterday. But he said with the, the, the stimulus package that was passed federally, he was saying that it's not enough. And he's going to, he's not going to be emotional about it, but he's going to like give them a talking to after this whole thing is done. And he just has to keep going. And I think that's the thing that pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of mentality that we as Americans are told. But it's also that that removal of emotion that you see in everyday life like that's how you have vicious attacks of social uh cyberbullying online you're removing the image of that person being hurt from the equation and i think as as the death toll rises you're it's just a number until it's a number that affects you you know what i mean exactly. and I, I think a lot of people are saying especially young people you know the spring breakers are saying well it doesn't affect me doesn't matter i'm young i'm gonna survive we talked about it last episode of you don't know you have certain pre-existing conditions until it's too late in this and scenario there's, al there's also i mean it's kind of a myth that it only affects older people too because right. even people without pre-existing conditions in some cases and we don't know why otherwise completely healthy people with no prior conditions are dying and they're younger there was a 16 year old uh, girl who died in france recently even out of wuhan we knew uh that it disproportionately killed older people but uh otherwise healthy young people were, were dying as well uh, uh yeah yeah we got to stay safe and yeah. uh, take this up seriously and i do agree that kind of like the inability to conceptualize and humanize in this case i think it was like people in china this happening too and i don't want to get into it but the media was pretty xenophobic and disgusting in the beginning yeah. about how they uh, treated um the deaths in, in china and kind of led to like the entire western world failing to take it seriously until it's overwhelming uh italy and even then it was like italian live it can't happen here and it's now it's happening here and it does shock me though how poorly people are able to conceive suffering from other people that aren't yeah there. and i and i want to underline the fact that when this is all over because it will there will be sorry still sparking in the background <laughs> there will be an end to it and right. i think when people return to work they need to hold their employers if they have them still accountable for how they're treating their employees and then also when you're getting back into the workforce ask your future potential employer how they treated their employees during this because uh, that's a great point mm -hmm. it is wild how people are being treated by their employers both positive and negatively some employers are doing a great job some are not and those who are not should be held accountable just like our politicians if they are misbehaving and spreading misinformation dangerously then they should be voted out of office come election time i think we just that's i think a goal of our podcast is to make sure that people are aware of who their representatives are and in this time know what they're doing and then reminding them when the election season comes along take your revenge through the, the polling station and colin how pretty much what i do yeah oh i'm sorry yeah no. <laughs> okay I was going to ask you a question related to that. How likely do you think it is that local politicians' careers will be affected by the coronavirus stuff? So, like, depending on how they voted, how they acted, all that kind of stuff. That's a tricky question. I think that sort of relies on two factors. Factor number one is that people connect this to their representatives. A lot, a big big problem with small politics, right? Local, you know, even state politics is that people don't see the connection 
between their representatives and what happens in their lives. Like when there's issues, a lot of times they look at the face value of the issue. And the only thing that's really isn't true with is potholes. For some reason, people, <laughs> I swear to God, for some reason, people connect potholes with politicians. But everything else, when they look at school systems, problems with school systems, urban planning, um, different things that happen with public transportation, raising rates on, on bridges and stuff like that, some people will make that connection, but others will not. Right. Others will not. And uh, the environment is a big one of these. Like when certain things happen with industry and the environment, people often look to those at face value rather than looking at, oh, wait, this is because of a very specific thing that happened with your representative. You're not getting the funding to get the resources you need because your representative is not representing you. They're giving bailouts to an industry that gave them a donation, for example. I've never seen that happen personally ever. So, you know. All of these things. Are, Is that sarcasm? No, <laughs> totally not. not at all. Um, but Is that sarcasm? Uh, <laughs> trying real hard. <laughs> so hard. Um, in, all, in, all, in all honesty, though, it, it comes with that connection. And when people do link it, when, and the media helps with this a lot, is sometimes the media will latch on to tying somebody to something. Usually it's for their own reasons, but sometimes it is like beneficial because then people see the connection between their government and what happens to them. And unless that, unless that happens, you know, people are not invested enough to care because they think, and the fallacy that's said over and over that is just simply not true, that your vote does not matter. Uh, and this is true, you know, across the board. But I think number two is sort of the secondary effects and fallouts, right? We saw a ton of politicians shift over after the Great Recession in 2010 with the Tea Party movement, right? Republicans focused on small local elections and putting people in place for small government. And in response, you know, some argue it was because of racial tensions after Obama was elected. But I think really, when you look at it demographically, it was because of the recession that caused a lot of people to get active. They didn't have a job, so they had more time, right? They didn't have an industry to go back to, so they had more time, and they can invest themselves into politics, right? When you don't have power in one area, you look for power in another. So it, the secondary effects, if that causes more people to get politically active, I think then it could have a blowback on the people who both did things and didn't, because uh, Americans love change, right? So they might just vote someone out of office because it's bad all over. So I think that those are sort of the two main things I'm looking at um, to see if this will have like a significant blowback on current incumbents. That's, that's interesting. I want to actually tease out both those points. Uh, so on the first point, do you think the exception to people not paying attention to their local politics is actually the governor because he's so much in front of this and like doing things that directly impact people? Like every, almost everyone in New Jersey knows that like we're in a lockdown and it's because of Governor Murphy in a certain sense. I think the governor is definitely sort of exempt from this. I think a lot of times we have a much easier easier time associating with someone who is in the big seat, right? Despite the president, not in recent times, I mean, we can talk about how executive orders have destroyed the three branches of federal government, but we don't need to get to that <laughs> now. What it does is it creates one person, one connection, right? So you can say, name did this, Trump did this, Murphy did this, Cuomo did this. It's much harder to say the House of Representatives did this, the Senate did this, your state government did this, right? With so, even how we talk about the federal Congress, so we'll say things like Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell mm -hmm. did X, mm -hmm. Y, and Z, which is because they're like the leaders of uh, their yeah. uh, respective branches of Congress. Absolutely. You're right. That's, uh, that's an interesting point. Yeah. People often like to tie things to one person because it's easier, right? It's easier 
easier for you to make that connection. And that's why people- It's easier to hate. It's easier to hate one person. I hate hate a lot of people in politics. I feel like I'm- (laughs) I think you might be an exception (laughs) as we're a little bit more engaged. But that's also, I think, a really important thing to is to understand that, yeah, we know that. But when you spend as much time talking to constituents as I have over the past six years, you realize that the things that get through are often really weird. And you're like, why do people latch on to this? And it's a great litmus test for what information does get through, right? So uh, I got to ask, what's what's not to shame any uh, constituent that you <laughs> talk to? You to yeah, but what is, what's the weirdest thing that you're just like, this is the thing that's, that you care most it. about? Yeah. Now? <laughs> I can tell you right off the bat. So I worked in 2016. I worked for a union super PAC in Wisconsin. Uh, I was the field director of a small area in La Crosse County. And so one of the people I talked to is a woman. She was, I would say middle-aged, maybe a little older. And she was furious because, and I, I cannot make this up, that they had enacted a rule that had made it so cows were not allowed to be brought to residential property and had to be in farmland property. And, and it was like this thing that like I had never heard before. I don't know if it's real. I still, I didn't check at all. <laughs> I think someone just told her she couldn't for probably a good reason, but she was convinced that it was this politician and therefore we need to get Trump in office. And so I was like, okay, all right. Fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) But that was the one thing she was like, I was never politically engaged before, but then this thing. And so I, you know, listened to a five minute rant about cows and I'll never forget that for the rest of my life. That's amazing. That's the thing though, um, that I was taught when I was, you know, going to, I was pursuing a PR career at one point that that I couldn't do it anymore because I just couldn't stand it. I can't (laughs) lie. And I can't, I can't bullshit. Um, so yeah exactly (laughs) so one of the things that i was taught was that there is a very big difference between opinions and beliefs and when an opinion shifts into the belief stance then it's very you know it's dangerous you can't you can't change someone's belief you know people believe in their their religion people believe in their very you know cut and dry values but opinions are easily swayed so she probably had the opinion at once that she should be able to have a cow on her residential property and then it became a belief because she had her cow taken away or something like that like that you know (laughs) yeah no it's absolutely true Uh, we we use that phrase a lot is you know a lot of times when you're talking about a candidate you need to tie either what they represent to a belief or you need to tie a thing that we can turn into an opinion right so it's sort of like those two things i don't know i I've, I've heard this, that mantra before. Sometimes it's explained a little differently, but the, the, the core concept is, is very valid and, and used a lot in a lot of places for messaging as well. And it's tricky. It's really hard because to identify what an actual core belief is, is very hard. You know, people do surveys and surf and focus tests and polling all the time and don't get it right. And it's a, it's a tough thing. It's both an art and a science uh, sort of mixed together. I have a couple more headlines. Okay. Do you guys want good news or bad news first? Uh, let's, start, let's start with the bad news. <laughs> start with the bad news. Okay, so this shouldn't be surprising, but New Jersey has the second most amount of coronavirus cases in well, the nation. For New York. For New York, yeah. yeah. And okay. uh, 
Yeah, again, this isn't really shocking. We, 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 we've mentioned earlier that basically we're next to the epicenter and it was to be expected. So I don't really need to say much more about that. The good the good news is that we're among the top five in the nation for social distancing. Wow. Uh, and that might sound contradictory because it might be like, wow, we're, top, we're doing social distancing really well, but we still have the second most amount of cases. But actually, because we're doing social distancing so well, we're not at like number one and also it is not as bad as it could be. So that's yeah. not we need to... Uh, and and it's also the, the most availability state, right? So yeah. like, we are easily the most densely populated state, which makes it way harder too. So that's really cool. I'm yeah, that's great. I'm happy. Yeah, I, was, I was actually really excited about that. The rankings are uh, New Jersey. This is according to NJEA.org. Univest is a company that compiles data based on cell phone usage from games, uh, shopping, and utility apps that Americans download, and then they like basically use this data to try to track movement across the state, which is kind of creepy in a way. But we do ignore that. For minute and then uh <laughs> so they, they found that new jersey curved movement by 50 percent in almost every county in the state i'm not gonna go through all wow. the counties i'm looking at it uh, the Holy only crap. one that was like not was salem so salem get on it uh Dude. you're only at 22 oh, percent so um uh, new jersey joins the district of columbia alaska nevada and rhode island in the top five and i not the Alaska. Alaska, but I feel like they're socially distant by default. I was about to say, like, like, they've definitely been practicing, so yeah, that's yeah. not really they're ready for this. It's not that's fair, an Alaskan, but, um, Alaskan belief. Is yeah. social distancing. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that's great. And uh, they actually credit the social distancing, distancing guidelines encouraged by the CDC and the World Health Organization uh, uh, being so well implemented by uh, Governor Phil Murphy. So I thought that was a pretty interesting study done. Two more things real quick. We have Representative Josh Gottheimer, a Democrat from the 5th District, has self-quarantined after being exposed to the coronavirus. So uh, hopefully he doesn't have it, just so that our numbers stay low. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and that, that sucks. But uh, I previously mentioned that Andy Kim, Representative of the 7th District, also uh, got it in self-quarantine. Well, uh, we don't know if he got it, but he was exposed, so he self-quarantined. And then I have a really weird story before we switch to your Murphy Can news. I just um, hop in? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Hop in. Yeah. Go ahead. Yep. So uh, just real quick because I would feel bad about I actually worked as the field director for Josh Gottheimer in 2018 on his primary. So A, I hope he's all right. You know, he's a, he's a really, really bullish representative. Like he will do whatever it takes for his county to get the job done. So hopefully he's not, he doesn't have the virus. That'd be terrible. And Andy Kim actually in 2018, excuse me, 2017 uh, during the governor's race was really helpful in, in Ocean County. Uh, and it was showing like signs that he may run. We didn't know at the time. And I knew the director of that campaign in 2018. I actually helped train her at the D trip. So that was really cool, uh, you know, looking around the nation and seeing Andy Kim from my home state getting in. So hopefully he's all right. I do know both of them. They're they're both, uh, you know, regardless of how you feel about their political views, they both uh, really, really work hard uh, at their jobs. I can say that for sure. Yeah, um, we're definitely going to continue following this and providing updates on uh, all the Jersey politicians who get it. Unfortunately, I think there's probably going to be more just because it's so widespread in the state. Uh, it's likely that more state reps will get it, but hopefully not. Hopefully these are the only two. Yeah. They self-quarantine and uh, there are none, no more cases. But I have a really weird uh, story. Um, I don't <laughs> know if you guys are ready for this. Uh, as reported by ready N- for a weird story. <laughs> as reported by NBC News, an NJ man was charged with terroristic threats for allegedly coughing on a Wegman, Wegmans worker. 
Uh, oh, I was no. the story. And I want to get your comment. Yeah. George Falcone, 50 of Freehold in the southern part of the state, was charged Tuesday by the New Jersey Attorney General for allegedly making the threats on Sunday in a Wegman supermarket in uh, Manalapan. Falcone was standing close to an employee near the store's prepared food section when the worker asked him to move back, as the Attorney General said in a statement. Instead, Falcone stepped closer to her, leaned in and coughed. He then laughed, telling the woman that he was infected with coronavirus and also telling two other employees they are lucky to have jobs. Yeah, so wow. apparently State Attorney General, uh, I'm going to screw their name, uh, Gerbier Grewal said spreading fear is unacceptable during this emergency. Quote, these are extremely difficult times in which all of us are called upon to be considerate of each other, not to engage in intimidation, spread fear, as alleged in this case. We must do everything we can to deter this type of conduct and any similar conduct that harms others during this emergency, end quote. Apparently, the third degree terrorism charge carries a sentence of three to five years in state prison and a harassment charge of sentence of up to six months. So, uh, wow. Um, yeah. You're seeing don't, that everywhere. You don't, mess, you don't mess with Geralty. He's the first appointed Sikh attorney general, and he's done a really crazy good job here in Jersey. That. Yep. He's uh, he's really cool. And with this stuff, people who are making jokes or doing all this stuff in times like this, it's like, you know, we were all alive for, for 9-11. It's like during times like that, you saw stories like this too, where people were joking or doing that. And during times like this, you can be, good luck. You're going to get the book thrown at you because it looks good. Yeah. For everybody involved to crack down hard and everybody likes to see that happen so people get a kick out of it so exactly not to downplay the terrible behavior that happened after 9-11 with like you know stupid kids yelling like regular right. airplane and stuff like that but actually this is arguably worse because he could be an ace assuming he doesn't have it he could be an a like or he just doesn't have show any symptoms doesn't believe he has it he could be an asymptomatic carrier and just being an asshole coughing on people and actually spreading it yeah. So, yeah. So like, uh, and also like the fear of that, like these grocery store employees are pretty much next to nurses and doctors, the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic. They're risking their lives partly because they have to for a paycheck, but also they're going to work and ensuring that we get the food we need to, and and supplies. It's it's absolutely gross. If anything, people should be extremely nice to these people all the time, and especially nice to them now, and arguing that they deserve hazard pay and paid sick leave, not coughing on them being rude because they're, they're lucky to have their jobs. And like, the big thing, too, which I think, again, it's all with this thing, it's the secondary concerns, right? So let's say somebody gets it right at that place suddenly then they're probably going to shut down that supermarket and who the yeah. hell knows whether or not someone has a supermarket near them if they can't leave their house so they could be without food and then pe times where people are out of work struggling to make ends meet that can be devastating not only to a single family but to a community so th this is the kind of stuff where i'm glad to see the responses swift and very clear as to the reasoning behind it uh it's often very important to do that to understand not only why this behavior is abhorrent, but is going to be unacceptable going forward. Yeah. And I just, I just hope that there are people that are, you know, like you said, cracking down on it and taking it seriously and charging these people, because if they don't, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen more often and that people aren't held accountable. Absolutely. What a great so, bunch of headlines. Everything's, yeah. everything's great. Nothing is wrong. That yeah. was sarcasm, just to be clear. <laughs> I wanted, do we have any more headlines? Uh, no, that's it. Okay, so I wanted to share with the audience, I was trying to figure out if we could break any news that's not corona-related, or if it is corona-related, it's something that's not being reported on in the, in the news. Um, so I wanted to bring to everyone's attention 
that the governor's mansion. So, Colin, maybe you can pronounce this for me. But oh. <laughs> is drum, it drum, thwack, drum thwacket? Drum thwacket? <laughs> yeah, drum thwacket manner. Drum, drum thwacket. Can you say that? And then can we slow that audio down for our audience? <laughs> <laughs> drum thwacket. But on the the property's website, it says that it's closed until August 31st to all public and private tours. And I wanted to bring this to everyone's attention because, again, it's something that's not being reported on. And it's like very, it's like tucked in, like who's visiting the governor's mansion's website, except for me, obviously. But it was a, a strange thing to see because for right now, everything that's being reported, it's, you know, everything's going to be closed until probably mid-April. And that's what Trump's trying to do. But it's also, we're saying that everyone's quarantined for three weeks. But seeing this kind of a visual stamp that's basically, you know, hinting at that this could continue until August. Mm-hmm. At least this is what the governor is doing for that property. So I think it's a very strange a premonition of what's to come that things are going to be extended likely and it's not going to be not going to be pretty so it's not just us sitting in here in our homes until april it's going to possibly be until august but all indicators are saying it's going to be until there's a vaccine which is months 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 away uh, 12 yeah. to 18 months according to the ninth report to the world health organization and that's the if College they have Eleven. one yeah that's, that's if what, they have one yeah yeah that's that's uh you know that's excuse me that's off of the assumption that we have something we can use and that's after testing so that's sort of you know yeah, you can't really speed that up either right so the audience yeah. understands like assuming we have like a vaccine now or like different types of vaccines development of them is partly to make sure uh, for months is is a lot of it's just testing to make sure that the vaccine isn't worse than <laughs> just letting yeah. it run out because you don't want to <laughs> you don't want to like give a vaccine and kill like millions of people because you didn't test it at all that's why we have these procedures yeah. in place and that's why they can we have a vaccine it, but that just means that they them. basically are prioritizing prioritizing its review, not necessarily that they're speeding up the process of being able to do it. It's absolutely true. So that it, that's a really illuminating point, Casey. Um, I, what I can say about the governor's manner is that a lot of times also you'll see this with places that have contact with very key individuals is that they will take extra precautions, right? Because God yeah. forbid the governor is incapacitated, then that puts a real big wrench because the governor has to approve a lot of things to get them done, especially in an emergency period. So I think maybe they're just playing it safe. But you're right. It could also mean that we're just stuck here for a much longer time. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if the governor understands this is going to go on longer because he's been following guidelines recommended by the CDC, but also the World Health Organization. So I'm sure him and his staff have read the reports that um, they expect this thing to peak in like May or June assuming that we actually follow through with like mitigation and like uh suppression tactic which we're not really doing <laughs> uh, like a federal definitely level. not across the country uh, yeah, I, yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't be surprised if he actually does expect this to go on longer but you don't want to just announce to people hey like just my as, as like a governor like oh this is gonna mm-hmm. go on to this, because one he doesn't really know for sure and two like uh the effect that would have on the citizens or residents of the state would just be uh, uh I don't know, it probably disproportionately bad. Yeah, yeah, it would absolutely and, be worse. <laughs> and I think that's a, that's the thing that I we've talked about, and I think last week when we walked the listeners and everyone through 
how to look up their representatives, their elected officials, and then to see what bills they're voting on and how to follow through with seeing that bill and seeing the details and who's sponsoring and all that good stuff that normally I would never do. But because I'm trying to be more aware and this podcast is all about becoming more aware politically about what our elected officials are doing with their time and our taxpaying money. But it's it's created this little habit that I have now of looking at bills, which I, mean, I never, <laughs> you know, looking at the executive orders that I, felt I would have never been like, oh, let me see what the governor's doing. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, what is the report on it? You know what I mean? So it's it's interesting to see what he's doing, but I, I wanted to bring that to everyone's forefront so they're aware that even if a, an official is speaking about something and what they're doing, knowing what they're doing behind closed doors or privately is a better better indicator of what's going to come for us as uh, New Jersey residents. Absolutely. Okay, next up, I wanted to read, speaking of his executive orders, I wanted to read through just the, the headlines for his executive orders dating to basically to when the beginning of February, which is when he started passing executive orders that a uh, we're all about the coronavirus, so I'm just going to do the timeline. So, and you can all look this up at if you go to his executive site, the official website for the state of New Jersey. You go to executive orders and you look at Phil Murphy. You could also see any other of the governors their executive orders from when they were in office. So it's a little fun fact of information hunting. So on February 3rd, 2020, Governor Murphy signed an executive order establishing a coronavirus task force. And then on March 9, 2020, Governor Murphy declares a state of emergency and a public health emergency effective immediately. Then on March 16, 2020, Governor Murphy announces aggressive social distancing measures to mitigate further spread of COVID-19 in New Jersey. Then a few days later, um, March 19, 2020, Governor Murphy announces changes to upcoming New Jersey elections in response to, to COVID-19. And same day, uh, Governor Murphy enacted a moratorium on removals of individuals due to evictions or foreclosures, which is that's nice. And then um, on March 21st, 2020, Governor Phil Murphy directs all residents to stay at home until further notice, which is we reported about this uh, last week. So if you yeah. want more information on that and the following order, uh, check out last week's episode. Yeah. And then the same day, Governor Phil Murphy um, indicates or he invalidates rather <laughs> invalidates any county or municipal restriction that in any way will or might conflict with the any of the provisions of executive order 107 which is the previous one where he right. said uh, further notice you have to stay home so that's that was interesting because we talked about it last episode about how difficult it is for murphy to jump through all the hoops through trying to collaborate with his you know fellow representatives to pass laws and you know take care of the the state and the executive order like there might be different counties there might be different cities in new jersey that you know pass their own things to take care of their people or to put them in harm's way as you know we see all the time <laughs> but it's it's nice to see that he was like no absolutely everyone has to listen to this i don't care where you are in the state you have to listen to this and then on the 23rd of march governor murphy suspends all elective surgeries invasive procedures to preserve essential equipment and hospital capacity. And then a couple of days after that, on the 25th of March, Governor Murphy signs executive order requiring child care centers close on April 1st 
unless serving children of essential workers. So that's all that he's doing and has done Corona forward. <laughs> it's interesting to see in times like this when we're dealing with crises, because this is where big government is useful, right? You know, there's always the debate. It's like, well, what should our government be doing? Should it be bigger? Should it be smaller? That's sort of the national discourse. But in situations like this, the reason why we have a strong federal government post, you know, the world wars and into the turn of the 20th century is for situations like this. And so it's interesting that now our states are having to play that role where we're seeing strong governors act in this way because we're not getting that sense of leadership from our executive representation. So it's like, it's really fascinating because normally this can be taken very badly. Like there's a, there's a way that this goes very horribly wrong. You know, much like there is a power grab post 9-11, you can easily see people putting in wartime powers and not using them correctly. So well, we're definitely we have, seeing that on a federal level. Yes, the we Department absolutely. of Justice requested uh, the ability to detain people uh, without uh, basically the suspension of habeas corpus. Yeah. <laughs> and it's absolutely <laughs> insane. Um, so, uh, which would make sense for partly for like a health reason, you, you'd want the ability to quarantine people, but they're not asking for the power for the duration of the crisis. It's like, let's exactly. have the power indefinitely. And, you yeah. know, powers granted indefinitely are usually aren't removed. And it's much harder yeah. to once you give somebody that that ability. Once you give them the button, you know, that's the old adage, you give them the, the nuclear weapon, you know, it's hard to take it away. So it's, um, yeah, well, this is why this is important. You've got to know when this is happening so that people can be informed about what rights, you know, they may be given up. So. So, Colin, how would you evaluate Governor Murphy's response to the coronavirus pandemic? Well, uh, I'd have to do it from a position of not being a health expert. I think, you know, just looking as, at, as we all are not. Yes, none of us are health experts. Please listen to them. They're doing great work. Especially shout outs to my cousin, AJ. She's working in San Francisco. She's a fresh brand new doctor out of med school and she's right in the thick of it. So, you know, she's been doing really great work. Um, so I'm really proud of her, but for me personally, looking at Murphy's response, I think that this is sort of the textbook way you need to do stuff like this, right? When you're not getting guidance, you then have to move towards, okay, what things do we need to enact and what do we need to enact now? I think the only thing that I see here that's slightly problematic is when the state of emergency and everything was enacted on the 9th. We saw it a little earlier, you know, really the end of February, early March was when everyone was like, okay, this is happening. I don't know if there's a provision that states that there needs to be a certain level reached. I think probably if I had to guess, there were internal meetings saying once it reaches this threshold, we have a prepped state of emergency statement that we put out. A lot of times you have to do that just so that you're ready for when things happen and you can then move on to dealing with the day to day. So that was the only thing I saw. Ultimately, how much how much do you think that was because of the lack of testing to uh, like uh, that? Maybe the state, yeah, the state yeah. would actually evaluate how uh, the crisis is going, because if you remember all throughout February and January, there was no real testing going on throughout the country. I remember um, even as uh, uh, late as early March, before the uh, uh, Trump expanded the testing capabilities of the CDC, 
the U.S. was only testing something like 77 cases a week nationally, yeah. whereas yeah. Uh, you had South Korea doing 100,000 a day. So, uh, yeah, I wonder how much that was related in the governor's response. Probably very high. And, and actually, sort of an anecdote, I traveled right before this all started, uh, actually kind of right in the middle for parts of the world. So in February, I went to Asia for a friend's wedding, but I was in Japan, South Korea, and Thailand. So Doing everything like, that you were supposed to not, <laughs> doing everything to get the virus, basically. Well, well, I'm actually curious. When you, when you came back, did they ask you anything about that? Did you? Did they were you able nope. to get tested or any of that kind of nope. stuff? Nope. I came so back. I've heard those stories repeated over and yep. over again. I nothing coming in. I got asked when entering Japan. I got asked when entering South Korea. Where are you coming from? What, what's the purpose of? your journey, blah, 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 blah. But what was interesting is when we came back to the U.S., it was all remote. We only had one person in the uh, passport checking area, and it was all done via machines, which I could tell were hastily set up, where they had a few, but they had, I guess, requisitioned some old ones and got some other ones, uh, and everyone was being very careful. I don't think they were – I mean, I know they weren't ready, but I also think the Newark actually was – the best out of all of the airports I went to with dealing with that. But I think it's because they had less restrictions because nobody was doing anything at the national level to be ready for this thing. So it was pretty incredible. Um, but we didn't know, like nobody really knew the extent of how bad this was going to be. Honestly, like nobody really had a good idea. Yeah. I just count myself lucky that I'm okay. But yeah, no, in terms yeah. of his response, I think the, the difficulty here as well as he's Murphy has a history of not being able to play well with the Senate, the state Senate, excuse me, the New Jersey state Senate, mostly because Sweeney loves to not let Murphy do what he wants to do. Um, yeah, I definitely. I want to, as we go on, I want to get you, your, uh, you to dive in more into that, but continue. Sure. So I think using these executive orders is exactly what he needed to do. And then because he's already done that, he can then go to the Senate who were now way more pliable because of this is a crisis situation. So he's already shown his ability to get things done. And now when he needs to, he can probably go back to the Senate and get whatever he wants. So I think it's a smart play politically as well. So one of the things I was confused is the economic response of, of New Jersey. Um, I, I don't understand why they haven't expanded on employment benefits and granted extensions. I understand that they're probably waiting for the stimulus bill itself to pass uh, Congress. But um, New Jersey could have made uh, exceptions way earlier when, as this stuff was starting to hit people, and it just didn't. Right. Yeah, still waiting. The official guideline of, of New Jersey is it has to be a 6.5% unemployment rate in New Jersey for them to uh, start extension. Right. And I think the, the interesting thing here is that that is what's tying his hands. And when you're looking at the response from like a purely you know, and I know, Casey, you said we want to advise against this. Um, you know, when you're looking at it purely analytically, New Jersey is one of the largest providers of unemployment benefits in the nation. New York, not as much. I think it's only California and Texas, I believe, because there are just so many people in New Jersey, right? Like there's so many people in New Jersey and it's just an unbelievable amount of money that they're going to need to shell out for this and they're not going to federal aid. So I think they're waiting for a long time before they have to push that button. That's a good point. But whether that's right or not, that's a whole other question. But I, that's my guess. And, you know, who knows if that's correct. I think he definitely is feeling that pressure because up until this point, he had not been effective in implementing the things he wanted to, to the scale that he wanted to do them. And he was looking very much like he was going to get a challenge from Sweeney in 2021 because of his ineffectual nature of the Senate. And if you noticed Sweeney and the NJEA 
came to terms, which was huge because the NJEA spent millions and millions of dollars trying to unseat him. And somehow they came to terms and did not invite the governor. Right. So that's a big statement. Right. That was um, you're referring to when uh, they were negotiating over um, uh, was it pensions for the teachers. Correct. Yeah, it is the, the, the pension renegotiation, which is a massive thing as well, because the NJEA specifically is also one of the strongest teachers unions in the country. So and they themselves have a lot of power. Uh, because New Jersey teachers, thank thank goodness, you know, my mom's been a member for uh, so many years. Has... So you're going to give a biased opinion. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's why I want to. I want to show my bias for sure. Uh, l- l- listeners, we we are we are pro teachers, and we pro are pro teachers. Surprisingly, <laughs> who'd have thunk? Uh, yeah, I didn't realize I was talking to a bunch of libs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's it's an it's a massive statement to not invite Murphy. So now that we're here. He has now been able to show what he can do when he has the support to do it. So I think a lot of this as well is trying not to hurt. Like if you're looking at it politically, right, you're not looking at it in terms of the effectiveness of the response or anything. If you're looking at it from what he needs to do to maintain his office, then he needs to show that he can be effective, right? He needs to show that he can get things done without being hogtied by the state Senate. And he's currently doing that. Uh, And I think the buttons he's not willing to push because it would thrash what he was trying to do are the unemployment and any other economic things that are outside of what the federal government guidance is. The good thing that we're seeing, though, is that he has, while doing that, also not done the scummy thing, and he has maintained standards based by the CDC and the World Health Organization, which is great because a lot of other places are not having that. So Mississippi, Florida. Yeah, exactly. So just literally doing nothing. <laughs> so I think that um, he's trying to balance those two things because, you know, like anything else, you got to look at the person. What is their agency, right? What are they trying to do? So that's what I, if I had to put myself in his head, that's what I would guess. But I think it's very fortunate for his political career. As horrible of a disaster this is, we saw that with Chris Christie. Uh, Hurricane Sandy was the reason he got reelected. He was the only Republican to step across the aisle to invite Obama, shake his hand, and that made him... When I say I hated Chris Christie, uh, he took away... (laughs) No, I'm serious. He he cut teachers' health care by a large amount. He was a terrible governor. Oh, horrible, horrible governor. Um, but in that moment, I remember because we were, you know, hunkered down right in there. I looked at him. And I was like, good. You know, I hate Chris Christie, but good that he's doing that. Even me, someone who hated his guts more than anything. Also, a, a lot know? of listeners might not remember, but when he shook hands with Obama, that was very in terms of the Republican Party. They hated him for that. Yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. it was it was actually still used in his uh, when he ran for president in 2015. That was part of the attacks against him was uh, that, you know, he was shaking hands with like, you know, the devil president. Right. But because <laughs> of that, he was very popular in New Jersey. Yeah, he was very popular. His supporters loved him more and he gained a few more supporters and was shoe in for being reelected. So, so you're really saying, like, who knows how this is going to play out for Murphy's reelection? I think it, it can only probably. be positive for his reelection because uh, his only challenge is going to come. Uh, OK, uh, looking at it normally, his only challenge is going to come in a primary. Right. I don't feel that he's going to have any challenge in the general, considering the national climate. When the there's going to be climate, no Republican challenger that, that has any realistic chance. 
yeah, unless they can distance themselves from the president, which is very hard to do. Though yeah. we are forgetting that we'll be past 2020 at that point. So depending on the results of the presidential election, there may be, let's say a Democrat wins, that oftentimes when you have a Democrat- I'm deeply pessimistic of that outcome. I, we can talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on, a, on another. <laughs> I, do, I do want to bring up, because we are talking about New Jersey representatives and Murphy's kind of challenges he faces with, you know, with his other representatives of the state. So I wanted to run through some of the the bills that have been passed through the the legislators. Awesome. And you you could find this Legiscan. I'm looking at legiscan.com slash New Jersey. So listeners, if you ever want to if you want to see what's being passed or approved or stuff that and one of the list is, you know, different different bills that are being approved and also that are being sent to the Secretary of State. So right up until Corona hit, so basically the beginning of March, the last thing that was last few things that were non-corona related, it seems like were a bill that commemorates the 100th anniversary of passage of 19th Amendment granting women the right to vote and a a bill that, and these two are just filed with the Secretary of State. I don't think they've been um, approved yet. But then the other one that was non-corona related was encourages foreign-based companies to make direct investments in New Jersey. So that's fun. So I hope there's no fake sheiks uh, coming in again for New Jersey <laughs> politicians to cozy up to. I don't know anyone who remembers the, the corruption trivia session that I did with Mike. That was one of my favorite political scandals in New Jersey. <laughs> So immediately after that, so that was the 5th of March and the 19th of March, we have a bill that is filed with the Secretary of State that's urging DHS to apply for federal waivers to facilitate and increase access to SNAP benefits during coronavirus disease 2019 outbreak, which is interesting because it's, uh, it's just 2019 and 2020. So I wonder if that's a snafu or if they're making it retroactive. So retroactive, usually that's yeah. And then same day, a bill permits professional and occupational licensing boards to expedite licensure of certain individuals during state of emergency or public health emergency. Another one that allows conduct of state business and legislative sessions at locations other than Trenton during periods of emergency or other exit agency allows conduct of legislative business using electronic means. So this is a thing that the federal government is also trying to do. I don't know if they've been able to pass it, but it's something that a lot of representatives are trying to do so they can self-isolate uh, and social distance. And I think you're going to see more officials that are going to be voting remotely. Um, I don't think the federal level, anything's passed, but the state legislative branches are doing that now because it's been approved. Being an elected official, you have a certain responsibility to keep yourself in good health and good standing and to represent your constituents as best as you can. And that includes making sure you don't get corona (laughs) and don't spread it to anyone. Because I think anyone that's been in any kind of state house in New Jersey, it's widely widely a lot of touching of surfaces in your face and spreading of germs naturally so it's a good thing that they're actually making it a point to self-isolate and yeah. still do also, the job. for people who aren't aware if you've never been in the nj state house it's a lot of like 
smaller corridors <laughs> and things like that. Like it's a, you, you can so stay six, cramped in there. It's so oh. cramped. You couldn't stay six feet away from anyone in, in there, uh, whether you're in the, the elevator or you're in the, uh, um, uh, taking the stairs or just walking through the hallways. So, uh, having this done remotely is a, is a good idea. Smart idea. So there's a same day on March 19th, um, a bill that establishes certain requirements to use telemedicine and telehealth to respond to coronavirus. Concerns, prohibition of residential tenant eviction and eviction due to residential foreclosure during certain emergency circumstances. So that was another thing that Murphy, I don't know the timeline if it was along the same thing, but it seemed like they're agreeing that people should not be evicted during this time or their house is foreclosed on. Another bill provides county clerks with additional week to mail ballots for 2020 primary election, requires ballot position draw to occur one day early if statutory date falls on a holiday. Another bill that urges FCC to take temporary measures to secure broadband access for those affected by COVID-19 permits corporations to hold shareholders meetings in part or solely by means of remote communication during state of emergency. Another one that requires health insurance and Medicaid coverage for testing of coronavirus disease 2019 and for telemedicine and telehealth during disease, uh, coronavirus disease 2019 state of emergency. Another one that authorizes the EDA to make grants during periods of emergency declared by governor and for duration of economic disruptions due to emergency allows EDA to grant certain business documentation submission deadline extensions. Another one that requires food access information be displayed on websites of 211 system and executive branch departments during public health emergencies to the extent practicable. Um, another one that authorizes all licensed healthcare facilities and laboratories to collect specimens to test for coronavirus disease 2019 allows waiver of staffing ratio requirements, limits return of items purchased from retail and food stores under certain circumstances. So this is good because you're having people who might return items that they've had in their home that might have, you know, been contaminated by the virus. And yeah, there was this, a cruise ship that um, they tested the services 17 days later and coronavirus was still active and present. So it's a good idea to return the uh, limit the ability to return items. Yeah. And that also I wanted to say on the cruise ship, they circulate air on cruise ships, especially on the lower level. So it's possible that it's one of those like anomalies. I think that the people are saying it and scaring people, but I also want to say that there's a perfect, possibly a perfectly rational explanation of why those services are still contaminated. We really don't know. And that's another thing that we're all learning as we go. <laughs> this is all very new to us and also the scientific community and also your elected officials. They don't really know what's the best thing to do, <laughs> but going on with the what's being passed. So another law that modifies deadline by which public agency is required to respond to requests for government record during a period of emergency. So again, it's making sure that things that are priorities are priorities and you're not staffing certain I'm not, offices. <laughs> I'm not sure I agree with this one. And there was a journalist who asked him about that because it has to deal with like um, Freedom of Information Act requests and things like that. 
like that, which is how journalists go about finding out what the government is doing at any given time, whether it's a state or a federal yeah. government. So, uh, and Murphy's response, I thought, wasn't too good or clear as to the intention of why that's going on. Uh, he basically said, if I remember correctly, uh, that we're at war and uh, that's why this is happening. And um, yeah. from a journalist's perspective, they need to be able to evaluate and get these kinds of things to understand if the response is, is good. Like, like uh, or, or yeah. like, was there more information that they had that... Uh, uh, or like even things that are unrelated to the coronavirus, like uh, why should it just be hidden now just because the coronavirus is going on? So I don't know, but Colin, what do you think about uh, that? I don't think it's a great answer. I think the reason they did it is there. It's sort of twofold, right? So when you have uh, FOA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests, that does take a lot of time to process because there is a very specific guideline to a what you can and can't give people. You have to give them pretty much everything, but there are a few things that you can and can't do when it regards personal information of other citizens, right? Then number two, you have a very specific set of guidelines for how the information is descended. And this, there's a deadline, right? So from a Freedom of Information Act request, within 90 days, there needs to be some form of response that follows a certain set of guidelines. So I think that this is more of a timing and a staffing issue because a lot of records are paper, right? So there's yeah. a lot of digital records, but there's also a lot of paper records. So that would mean people in places handling paper, doing stuff like that. I don't necessarily agree with it. I think maybe they could shift the guidelines of it and say, like, look, we want to keep all of this stuff, but there's going to be delays. Like instead of making it a hard and fast, like we're not doing any of it, like mm -hmm. and removing the delay entirely, just extending it until a period of time in which they could make sense of it and being communicative about why. I think it's just that it, this was easier for them to do. Honestly. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, I definitely don't just... think it was nefarious intent. It's just I yeah. worry that it'll last longer than coronavirus. Oh, yeah. No, and yeah. that's the thing. Oftentimes, it starts with not in nefarious intent. Like, the reason we're having a problem with executive orders is because President Obama wanted to get his immigration bill through, and he wanted to get health care through. And now we're seeing what a president with an executive orders can do, right? That's how you get the travel ban. Yeah. That's how you get, you know, a bunch of things that are, are bad. So it's, it's, it's a slippery—I uh, hate to use the word slippery slope, but— <laughs> <laughs> it, it, is. In this case, it actually is. It actually is. Yeah. Normally I'm very against that phrase in a lot Same, of because it's always misapplied, but like, yes. uh, in this yes. case, yeah. it's actually not. And it's, it's also important to, as a, as a New Jersey resident, as a New Jersey voter to be aware of all these things that are being passed because you're going to want them to be removed. Okay. After this kind of thing. So you're going to want to have like a chart where you say this was enacted or Corona. And then after Corona, you have, these are all things that were enacted and one by one we have to cross them off because we can't stay in this this state you know what I mean it's not going to be something that should continue and if some officials are going to keep certain things in place that were enacted during basically wartime then you know they are not thinking with your your mind in mind you know what I mean yeah exactly and also just like in a less serious thing than you know restricting FOIA requests um uh, <laughs> like like re like refunds and returns of items like uh I don't want like that overall benefit to businesses <laughs> if it stays in place because then you buy an item you don't want it anymore you can't return yeah. it so they still have your money but like I or you want can't to just be able to wear... return an item <laughs> like yeah. at some point in the future you don't want to have this stay in place forever it's uh, bad for consumers I bought a yeah. webcam 
it has a scratch on it and I cannot return <laughs> it and I'm so mad. Like, <laughs> I, I, like I probably could, but I just don't want to spend the time doing it and have to like put other people like potentially more contact. It's like yeah. not that important, but it's just so frustrating because it's like a little tiny scratch and I'm just like, oh, oh yeah. That's <laughs> awful. But back to the laws, a few more all passed on March 20th. Um, so another one that requires school districts to provide school meals or meal vouchers to students eligible for free and reduced price l- school lunch during the school closures due to COVID-19 concerns time off from work in connection with the infectious disease permits extension of deadlines for a for adoption of county and municipal budgets under certain circumstances. Another one that um, allows public bodies to conduct meetings and provide notice by electronic means during periods of emergency. And the the most recent one, the last one on this list, so this is uh, March 25th, so that is this week. A couple of days ago, we're recording on the 27th. Friday. So this last one concerns family leave and disability benefits during the epidemic-related emergencies. So that's all that's happening in the New Jersey government, things that are being passed. And I think last week, Mike and I talked about a few of those, and we saw if our elected officials were voting um, yes or no on these corona-related things. And during times of crisis, I think a lot of things fly under the radar. Yeah. So completely unanimous votes. And it's very rare to see a dissenting vote. It's, it's often, yeah, it's often completely unanimous. Yeah. Cause you don't want to be that guy. Exactly. (laughs) Well, what's interesting about the last one, I I do want to bring this up. So what's really fascinating here. So we have our sponsors of this bill, obviously Sweeney is top of the list. Nothing gets done in New Jersey. Even if he's not on the bill, he's going to do it. He's going to have his fingers in it. So, (laughs) Uh, Last thing here, if we look at this, employers are required to give an additional 12 weeks of family provided leave applying to during a state of emergency declared by the governor or when indicated or needed to by the commissioner of health or other public health authority, serious health conditions shall also include an illness cause, blah, 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 yeah, you know, COVID. I, essentially, so you are allowed family leave if you have a suspected exposure a communi- of the communicable disease, efforts to prevent the spread of a communicable disease, which requires in-home care or treatment of a family member or of an employee. So what's interesting here is this basically applies to anybody who's under quarantine, right? If they still have a position, you know, it's requiring employers to give them family leave, especially now that schools are closed. So this is actually massive. And uh, this is a huge, huge boon to people who still have employment. Point being is that I think this is sort of twofold. One, this is great news for, you know, people who are already sheltering in place and having to take care of children and other family members and are simply just sheltering in place. But number two, this is, again, I'm really I, I know I sound like a broken record, but I think this is the Senate now angling to show that it's also doing its part and it has agency in this crisis and maybe doing things that, you know, Murphy can't really disagree with. Right. So it could be pushing the budget in one direction. But if, if it comes across Murphy's desk and he doesn't sign it, he looks like a complete, you know, ass. Yeah. So it's another power play there. So I, I'd actually, I, I, I think we should tease out what's going on between Murphy and um, the Senate. So like, let's actually go back a couple of years. Uh, Murphy comes, uh, is a, a in office. And I think it was something like in the first 90 days we were going to have, uh, he wanted to have legalized marijuana. 
and it was all held up in the Senate. And it's been basically held up in the Senate since. Can you can you uh, maybe focusing on not just that issue, but like what is the dynamic at play here, and uh, like what what is going on? Yeah, sure. Uh, this is actually um, so I'm kind of uniquely qualified to answer this question. I don't need to like so sort of my full experience. Uh, you know, I've been an organizer for the past six years, but during 2017 specifically, or the end of 2016, 2017, I worked as a field director for Phil Murphy's campaign. So I was running town halls for him. You know, I was doing canvases for him and a lot of stuff directly related to the Murphy campaign. And as a lot of you know, Murphy is an outsider. He is not a political insider. He was not part of the New Jersey political regime. So what he started to do to get in the good graces is he maxed out out to every county committee, every Democratic county committee before the primaries even started. So a maximum donation of 22,000 something or something, I think. So Murphy's always come to the place of New Jersey politics from the outside. Sweeney in the Senate, on the other hand, it is very difficult to maintain political office in New Jersey if you are not part of the New Jersey Democratic Party or what's normally called machine politics. The machine being the party apparatus. It is often referred to in a negative way because they will churn people up and to do what they want to do. And back in the day, and I'm sure you covered this in your corruption trivia, they are constantly getting in trouble for doing things that you are not allowed to do <laughs> with corruption laws and, and breaking the law another way. So that is New Jersey has a long history of corruption, whether that's the mob, whether that's with big industry, it's it's uh, tales all this time. So in saying that, Steve Sweeney was one of his challengers, one of Phil Murphy's challengers during the 2017 gubernatorial primary, the Democratic primary, and ended up along with uh, Mayor Fulop who are his two perceived to be biggest threats dropping out, turning Murphy to be an outside contender into the front runner. And a lot of people are wondering, okay, well, why did they drop out? Sweeney saw that he probably could have run. Fulop was also very popular at the time before his fall from grace. And the reason was, most people think this is a rumor, but I, I heard a lot of rumors from that time, is that Steve knew how much money would be spent in the primary and he didn't want to get into a spending battle with Murphy because he knew he would lose. And it would then impact his ability to get things done in the Senate because he wouldn't have the normal tools and the power of the South Jersey Philly machine, the Norcross money that he's been getting for a very long time. And this is all very open. This isn't like storied secrets here. This is widely understood information. So what that means is, is that ever since Murphy took office, Sweeney has been angling himself to make him as ineffective as possible while aggrandizing his own position in an attempt to run for governor. And this mm. is pretty, uh, it's been that way for a very long time. And with marijuana, it's sort of a very nice microcosm of their relationship, right? Phil Murphy makes it very clear what he wants up front. So Sweeney knows exactly what he's not going to get through. He's not going to let this pass, and he's not going to put the blame on himself. What he did is he foisted a lot of that, or I, I can't say that he did this, but he's the Senate president, right? So, yeah, he, so he, he basically runs the state Senate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's, able to, he's able to choose what comes up, what doesn't. He's able yeah. to uh, whip votes together and all those exactly. kinds of things. Exactly. You know, uh, oftentimes, if you really want to look at it, if you've seen House of Cards, Steve Sweeney is about as close as you can get to an actual version of, uh, I can't even remember what 
that guy's name is, the main character. Yeah. Um, uh, he's about as close as you can get to somebody of that power, like really having that level of power. And so what marijuana Underwood. was is Underwood, right? <laughs> Underwood, right. <laughs> uh, played by someone we should not name canceled. because he's, he's not just... <laughs> he's been canceled. Actually, <laughs> actually needed to be canceled too. So... The, the point is, is that medical marijuana, excuse me, legalization of marijuana was a really easy because it's popular in the media. Right. So it's an easy thing to stick to Murphy that he said he was going to do it and he didn't do it. So what you do, <laughs> you then put in place what are called dinos. So there's a lot of people who are Democrats in name only. Right. Yes. There's a lot of people who exist in the New Jersey State Senate who only are Democrats in the sense that they need to be elected by the machine. Right. So they it's not popular in their district to have legal marijuana because it's a lot of older white folks. So they don't want to put it in place. And even if it is popular in their district, they don't want to put it in place because that's not something that they believe in. Right. So they were very instrumental in blocking this from going through. And what Sweeney did is then pinned it on Murphy, right? Essentially without having to say anything, he's pinned it on Murphy that he's ineffective. He can't even, well, that, that's the, it, 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 it worked because uh, everyone I know who's been following this casually, who like are interested in marijuana <laughs> legalized in New Jersey, all say uh, Murphy said that it was going to get passed and he never was able to do it. What the hell is he doing? And um, yeah. I'm like, there's more at, at play here than what people are seeing. It's it's a lot more complicated than uh, one governor unable to get something done. Yeah, wait, yeah Murphy wait. can't. I was going to say Murphy can't do, you know, an executive order to pass this kind of a thing because there's the state, the counties, the cities, they all need to be involved and they all need to, there needs to be things put in place and everyone needs to agree on it. And if not everyone agrees on it, then it's going to be, you know, it's on the ballot for um, November. I um, actually think it's going to have a very good chance of passing with the yeah. fact that we need every economic stimulus you can get. And if the government can tax it, they're going to put it in place. I think you're going to start seeing that movement actually come much quicker as people realize they can't afford to equivocate about their perceived morals when there's potential tax revenue at stake. Exactly. Like I said, when the money comes and when the hurts and the money, you're going to see things change quickly. So this, this yeah. dynamic has affected, has gone beyond just the marijuana oh, of fight. Yeah. So for instance, we covered in the first episode, the budget in the budget for 2021, Governor Murphy wanted to basically fund education higher and he was uh, more and he's going to use a millionaire's tax to do that and originally Steve Sweeney said that he was in favor of the millionaire's tax he was just against the increase in cigarette tax and then a week later he, he comes out he's opposed to the uh, millionaire's tax because he doesn't think there needs to be any new taxes in, in, in the state uh, is this more of the politics at play trying to just uh, absolutely not yeah. even a question uh, he is trying to make it his budget what is important to Steve Sweeney is not what's in this budget. Not none of this stuff uh, affects him. I think the millionaire's tax, you could argue that he got some calls from donors maybe saying like, hey, you know, we put a lot of money into you fighting this NJE fight, uh, you know, in your last election. Make sure we don't have this on our backs. I don't think it's so much of that because actually a lot of these millionaire's taxes are really ineffectual and actually hitting people that hard. People don't want to get much money, but it's not. It's, regulation it's not that we're industry. taking 90% of their wealth. It's going right. up by like a fraction of a percent or a percent Which of is, so it's like it really doesn't make any difference to millionaires how much i mean they obviously they don't want to get taxed more but right. like it's not killing their their no. uh, well the things they care about more is uh, industry regulation and breaks for corporations because the most of their money is in assets it's not exactly. in liquidity right and they most of the time will 
pass a lot of that off anyway. So these aren't as important, but what it is good is a chip, right? It's a chip. You said this in the media. It's a hot button thing. People understand it. And a lot of times people don't understand budgeting, but it's pretty simple. Tax millionaire. Okay. Yeah. I can get behind that. I'm not a millionaire or (laughs) I hate that because I might be a millionaire, you know, whatever it is, people get it. Right. And so that's important. So again, clearly connecting things like politicians are really aware of what connects with people. And this is something that people can understand. So that's why he doesn't want it to be a part of it because he can again point at phil you didn't do this you said you would he'll probably if he ran he could go back and say i was for this you know and you know you couldn't even get it passed through the senate you know even though i was trying to help too you know what i mean like there's exactly there's a lot of different things you can play it in a ton of different ways i don't know how smart it was for him to do this I, I, I think this meaning is sweet, meaning Sweeney. Yeah, I don't know if it was his best play because it's now because ultimately it can be thrown back at you. Right. Well, you were the Senate president. Right. So why didn't it happen if you were for any one of the things? So he would have to be against them. And it doesn't look like he would. Right. He could run more moderate. But I don't know if the climate in New Jersey is ready for that. So I think he might have pigeonholed himself. Right. And just there's certain things he can and can't support by limiting Murphy's uh, access to the budget. On the so, other hand, it seems like he's done dominating messaging. And I want to bring that up about Murphy, because does it seem like it seems like Murphy has a messaging problem? He's not able to explain why things are going not going the way that he wants in the state. As someone who's like a political outsider, you would think that he would have to understand the dynamic that he needs to speak directly to voters and residents in in New Jersey. So, for example, just one of the things, again, in the budget was that his reasoning for increased education, besides uh, uh, education funding, besides that just being a a good thing, was that it would help lower property taxes in in New Jersey, because in New Jersey, most of the funds for uh, uh, local schools come from the property tax of those locals. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's an incoherent logic because the municipalities themselves are the ones who raise and lower property taxes in the municipalities. And he had no mechanism in place to be able to actually uh, uh, allow that. So like, it just seems like his messaging is constantly confused. Is otherwise a a somewhat decent progressive agenda that he has? And I wonder if what are your thoughts on that? That's a tricky one. You know, he did a really great job messaging himself in the election. And that's more my specialty, actually, like, um, you know, messaging things as an incumbent is something I'm not don't have as much experience on. But what I will say is that I think a lot of the issue comes from his inability to take his ideas and find that middle ground. He's used to being in a business sense, right, where everybody's bought in, right? You know, well, we all benefit from this. And not everybody's bought in in government, right? You're representing disparate groups. You're representing different areas. You have different things that matter to you. And while technically you should be bought in in a general sense, you're only bought into like a few core beliefs, right? And we're sort of seeing this now in crisis, right? So in crisis scenarios, the reason why there are, you know, unanimous votes is because we're all bought in. We're all like, yep, we all agree on this one thing. We have a common enemy. And that's why it's so dangerous and also really beneficial sometimes when you have crisis situations. So I think a lot of it is that he's used to a business mentality where it's like, well, if I just come up with these great ideas and a way to implement them, it's fine. Instead of actually realizing he needs to have 
advocates, people other than him, helping out his stuff and building other people up. You saw this with Obama. One of Obama's biggest failings was he didn't build up people who are lower than the federal level. And we ignored local politics and we ignored state politics as the Democratic Party. And that's why we got our asses kicked in 2016. The Democratic Party during Obama's uh, presidency lost something like thousands of political seats across the country. Yep. The only one we took in uh, Murphy was a big win for us in 17. That was a big deal. It was one of the first post-Trump elections. That was a big state election. And that was a big deal. So I think that is his biggest issue. But I don't know how you do that, too, because also he's not as popular amongst the insiders because he's not one. You know, he, he came from the outside and the machine was just so desperate to get rid of Christie. They're like, screw it. We can go with you. You know, you gave us a lot of money. You know, maybe this will work out better than Corzine. Right. So <laughs> it's tough to say, but it's, it's an interesting point because you're right. He is losing the messaging battle. And this has been helpful for him. This being you know, our current situation, because he's had direct line and a willing and participating office, uh, audience. So, you know, it, it, it'll probably be positive for him politically, despite all this. It seems like he's an outsider that's unwilling to fully push the outsider line, reaching directly to the people and trying to circumvent the power of, of the political machine. But at the same time, he has that kind of centrist, technocratic, pragmatic approach of trying to compromise but he's not playing the same game as they are. Steve Sweeney and others are playing the game of this is the kind of career power that I want to have in uh, the Senate now and what I'm positioning myself to have later, whereas uh, it does seem like he's playing the more Obama approach of I'm just trying to find some kind of middle ground with slightly center-left-leaning politics. Right. Yeah, and it's it's a it's tricky thing because center-left-leaning politics gets you elected a lot of times, you know? It's uh-huh. just like a very palatable thing, but how effective it is, right, is very debatable, right? Is it going to actually cut through the bureaucratic tapes needed to to implement like policies that are going to be beneficial to the people right so it's it's an interesting dichotomy um and that's something you can you know talk about for hours is the what is electability what does that word even mean is it relevant now regardless of all of that i think when you're looking at murphy he's just unable to really communicate why things aren't happening. He's great at communicating a plan and a message and, you know, getting that across. I think he's done a great job in general with that, but he doesn't have a great way of communicating his struggles because that's hard to communicate. You know, it's hard to tell people why you failed as somebody who, you know, anytime anybody admits failure nowadays, you know, people don't know how to handle it. So. Also, it comes at a political cost, too. If you burn a bridge, say, like, still got to work with Sweeney, he's still there. It's mm-hmm. not like he's uh, um, supporting a uh, challenger to Sweeney's seat. And right. uh, if he points and says, Sweeney is the one who's preventing my uh, stuff, then Sweeney can just be like, well, you know, you're the governor, so it's the yeah. leader of all this. Even though it's like, <laughs> not technically true, you, it, 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 it's, you, it's if you're going to burn a bridge, spot. you have to be ready to, to go all the way, all in. Yeah, it's it's uh, Sweeney is making the governor's life miserable. It's it's uh, he's real. Sweeney is real good at what he does. He's a he's a God. He's a he's an interesting guy. Well, on on that note, I wanted to wrap up this segment and then go into a little segment about you, Colin, oh, and shoot. your company. So, Colin, Field Wins 
It's not field wins. It's W-I-N-S, right? <laughs> yes, that's correct. Field wins races or field wins. Yeah. So, so I started this consulting firm just this year. And this comes from my work that I did with Brown Miller Group, who is a, another great consulting firm in New York City. Uh, so a lot of my work recently has been New York centric. But what we do and what I've you know tried and, and strive to do is we work to run modern competitive field races for candidates who are progressive and who are looking to actually get their message directly to people. And one of the biggest things we've found in this age where it's very easy to be lost in sort of a wave of too much information and it's sort of hard to parse out what is signal in noise is that person-to-person communication, whether that's something like this, you know, having a conversation or, you know, talking to somebody at a door or over a phone is one of the best ways to get across an idea. And that's ultimately what you're doing when you're talking about a candidate or a representative, the idea of them leading. What ideas do they have? You need to convey those ideas and convince people, right? And then motivate them to go vote. So uh, that's what I do. And I've done that for a while, but it's been a really interesting, just sort of the logistics part of doing small businesses. I'd, I'd run, you know, big budgets and campaigns, but it's very different when uh, you're sort of the point person and uh, it's all on you, you know? So it, it's been a, a really interesting adventure for the start of the year. And because of all this uncertainty, there's a lot of, you know, um, actually almost better that it just started out. So there's not a lot of things to lose. It's more that I now sort of have more time to really concretely dig down into like, you know, how I want to pitch, you know, what are my mission statements? What am I doing? And so that's, that's been cool. I just kind of just got to look at the bright side of things right now. Yes. So who, who do you service specifically? So is it local politicians? Is it small businesses? Is it policies? Like who do you want to service? Well, in terms of what consultancies usually do is they usually work with campaigns, uh, usually much smaller when you're starting. There's a lot of big national firms that work, you know, big time with large federal candidates or big statewide races or congressionals. But, you know, you, you can work in a ton of different smaller areas, as well as with people who are on bigger races, but maybe need a small area covered. So, for instance, a lot of times on a big race, when it gets down to what's called GOTV or get out the vote, the last few days before an election, they'll need they'll have a need for, you know, people you know, people to knock on doors, make phone calls, whatever it is. And that's where a smaller firm like me to come in, where let's say it's a presidential and there's an area of New York that's not covered by the Democratic Party, usually not the case, just New York's very, very active political place. But you would, you might need a consultant to go and help out. Um, and for smaller races, you work directly with the campaign, you work on what budget, you know, you're, you're paid out to do. And then a lot of times they're your client, right? They're your boss. Well, bosses in this the right word, but you're beholden to them, right? So you have to make sure you're meeting the needs. Uh, you have to communicate clearly like what's happening and what's going on. And then on top of that, you can also work with advocacy campaigns and nonprofits. A lot of times they also need help with messaging and person-to-person communication or organizing. So, you know, nonprofit groups, whether uh, I did a voter registration campaign for La Familia Vota, which is a group that specifically works with getting Latino voters registered in certain areas that are just not the culture isn't there for voter registration, right? Like registering to vote isn't a part of their community and creating those communities. So that's like a long form organizing. And so that's like a, 
a very different form than like ground and pound talking to people at the door. So yeah, those are usually like the kinds of things you'll work with. And sometimes it, you know, it can be as short as a couple of weeks and sometimes you can be, you know, on with a client for years, you know? Wow. And what kind of, uh, I, they're typically called KPIs. So, uh, key performance indicators do you work on. So what kind of meters do you move for the candidates or campaigns that you're, you're working for? Yeah. Metrics are extremely important. So the biggest thing is engagement, right? So your ultimate goal is a KPI, right? Votes. Didn't you get yes. more votes than <laughs> either when they last ran or, you know, votes to hit your vote goal. And you can measure that in a lot of different ways, but a lot of ways of what's called IDs and not necessarily the way you might think of them, but it's you having a conversation or an interaction with the voter that indicates that they will vote for your candidate. Right. So, yeah. and IDs usually like us, then you take a percentage of them, which are where there, are they very likely to vote? Are they kind of likely to vote? Are they not very likely to vote? And then you percentage those IDs into a guesstimate of where you are with your vote totals. And then, okay, well, if we're missing some from a certain area or a certain demographic, how do we boost that number, right? What messaging do we have to do to boost that number? And then key performance also is just from the amount of contact you're making, right? So a, a great way to show that you're doing that is you make a lot of calls, you knock a lot of doors, you, you know, hand out a lot of flyers. Those things, um, while not direct, because again, it's, it, it's a lot harder to see because there's sort of one step removal between the actions you're taking and the voting booth. But it's been proven time and time again that if you don't have a field campaign or you don't have a strong field campaign, you can forget about, you know, winning a race. Like it's just, yeah. it's, it's what's called the field margin. You know, there are some races where it won't matter, but field is about four to 5% of a vote total. So in a race that's a toss up, field is the difference. And how can people contact you? Oh, uh, Colin at fieldwins.us. If anybody wants to reach out to me, I'm. Is there, do you have like a website too for like uh, um, where people can go and see your, uh, see your work or anything like that? Great point. I will on the 1st of April because uh, there were some issues with domains with uh, everything shutting down, but uh, yeah. it should back up on April the 1st. That's when it's all resetting. So uh, that's uh, fieldwinds.us. Very cool. It's very yeah. exciting. Kyle, I want to thank you so much for coming on this episode of Jersey Matters. Uh, it was an honor to have you on. Oh, thank very... you so much for having yeah. me. Really appreciate it. And thank you, listeners. We will see you next week, hopefully with some better news. But if not, we'll be there to deliver it to you. <laughs> All mourned together. <laughs> and signing off, this is Casey McLean. Mike Perino. Goodbye.